This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Book Waves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. The winner of the 2017 Nobel Prize in Literature, Sir Kazuo Ishiguro, is recognized today as one of the world's leading authors. Nominated four times for the Booker Prize, he won in 1989 for The Remains of the Day and was most recently nominated for an Academy Award for a screenplay for the 2022 film Living. In this interview recorded on October 8, 2000, he discusses his most recent book at that time, When We Were Orphans, and discusses how he became a writer and the relationship of his Japanese heritage to his life in Great Britain, where he's lived since he was six years old. His most recent novel, A Parable, titled Clara and the Sun, was published in 2021. This interview was digitized, remastered, and edited in November 2023, and has never been heard in its entirety. My guest is Kazuo Ishiguro, whose latest novel is When We Were Orphans. Earlier novels include Remains of the Day. This book takes place in both London and in Shanghai. Now, I understand your father lived in the international settlement in Shanghai. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, my father was born there, actually, in 1920. He's now 80 years old. He now lives in the home counties of England in a very quiet suburb, and that's where he's been living for for the last 40 years. But what was bizarre for me to discover as a child was that you know he was born in this wild place, Shanghai between the wars. It was a very decadent I guess uh, sometimes pretty criminal place, a place with fabulous amounts of money and different kind of currents of historical and economic activity all meeting there. So you had the the British, the French, uh, the Americans, the Japanese all vying with each other for dominance in that international settlement. The Chinese themselves were having an underground underground war, the communists and the and the uh, nationalists. There were people who fled the Russian Revolution, these aristocrats living desperately poor lives as, um, as you know, taxi dancers and doormen in nightclubs. And latterly in the 30s, the Jews escaping Nazi Germany finally settled there in ghettos. Uh, so a time of huge kind of fortunes lost and won, gambling, decadence, of course, opium. And yeah, I used to look at these photo albums that um, my father had. There were a lot of photographs taken by my father's father, my grandfather, who was the grandfather I knew as a child. My grandfather had been charged with setting up Toyota in China. And I understand that's not Toyota, the car maker, but uh, they manufactured something else. No, that's the same company. But in those days, Toyota was predominantly a textiles company. I, I'm not sure at which stage they started going into motor production, but... Uh, and so, so partly for for the reports and so on, partly just for just as souvenirs. I mean, there were a lot of photographs taken. And uh, and those photos, I mean, they, they, they always fascinated me, those albums with these, what looked almost like movie stills, you know, these gray and white photos of men in white suits and hats, sometimes carrying guns, you know. One of the salient points of your books, of course, is is people being out of place, 
uh, you're a, a, of Japanese descent living in, in England. You, you don't quite fit in in that sense here or there. And at that point there, it sounds like nobody fit in. The entire international settlement was consisted of people who came from somewhere else and were going somewhere else. In a way, you could say the international settlement of Shanghai between the wars was a kind of prototype for many of the multicultural, modern cosmopolitan cities we, we see all around the world today. It, it proved to be far less permanent than I hope a lot of our communities around the world are going to be but uh, you know it was an interesting i guess kind of experiment and and in my novel um yeah I, I have these two boys little boys who are growing up next door to each other in this pretty affluent well-heeled neighborhood one is a japanese boy the other's an english boy but see they're in an odd situation one is told he's japanese the other is told he's english but they don't really know what that means they they only know this life in this international settlement in in Shanghai, so they try very hard to be you know, Japanese on the one hand, English on the other, but they've never been to these countries. But they spend a lot of their time arguing about you know whether Japanese kids cry easier than English kids or whatever, without really understanding these labels. And so I was quite interested in that situation: people growing up very unclear, not just about their national identity, but even you know what national identity means. They're not quite sure how you grasp it. Well, when you were writing those segments, did you find yourself identifying more with Christopher, the English boy, or with Akira, the Japanese boy? Neither, really. You know, um, I wouldn't say you know, either of them... Uh, th there was no attempt to, to write anything directly autobiographical there. Although, obviously, you know, with my own personal background i have some sympathy for for this kind of rather mysterious approach to 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 national racial identity that they have but uh, no i you know i felt a certain sympathy for them both and and later on i guess the tragedy for them w when they're grown is that see they they believe that um, you know that the international settlement is permanent that's the, that's the only thing they know they're born into that community. They think it's always been there, always will be there. To them, it feels very solid. This very peculiar state of affairs, all these people living there, they think that's, that's what the world is like. And of course, just within a few years, it's all wiped out by war, you know, but things changing. And uh, their tragedy, of course, is that they have no hometown or homeland. I mean, that was it. Is that one of the reasons that Christopher becomes a detective, do you think? One of them, but I think the main reason he becomes a detective uh, is because the at a at a crucial point in his life, a, an awful thing happens to him. Right. His his parents are apparently kidnapped in Shanghai when he is ten years old, and then as a he's he's just at that age when he's just about old enough to think he could have done something about it, you know. But he's too young to really fully understand what's happened. So he feels a sense of responsibility. He should have stopped it. He should have protected his parents. On the other hand, of course, he's just a kid. He, you know, what could he do? So he relies a lot on the detectives of Shanghai to find his parents, and they never do. So he goes to England, becomes a detective. The book is um, not quite a detective tale, though there is this great detective. What I found most fascinating about Christopher as I read the book is that he's probably the most clueless detective I've ever run across. Things happen around him, 
And uh, since it's told from the first person, he kind of lets it go. And I'm reading with amazement. This guy doesn't seem to have a clue as to what is really going on. And the question is, how can he be a detective? <laughs> yeah, he's probably not a very good detective, although you know, he thinks he's this brilliant detective. He's like a detective in the sense that he's, you know, he, he's like a figure who is peering through a magnifying glass, and he's bent right down, staring at something through a magnifying glass, and he can't see all the things around him. He can't see things that are just an inch to the left or right of him because he's staring through this magnifying glass at this spot. And I think he goes through the whole of life like that, staring through a magnifying glass. A magnifying glass, of course, makes things pretty blurred and strange and distorts things. And that, that's how, that's how his, his narrative is, really. You go through this book. It probably feels a little bit like you know, how a room would look if you actually held a magnifying glass a few inches from your face and looked around. You, know, you see this kind of blurry thing in the middle. I'm very curious about one thing in, that, that keeps recurring in the book, which is people will look at him, make comments, even laugh, and he doesn't seem to understand why. And because we're looking through his eyes, we don't know either. What are they laughing at? It happens in particular at one, one party uh, that people have made some comments to him, and it kind of goes over his head, and we don't find out what they've actually said. What were they saying? I don't know exactly what they were saying at that particular moment, but I think here here we have a character who, who, who desperately wants to fit in. He's come over from Shanghai, although he's racially English. You know, he's always thought of, of himself as English. When he actually is transported from Shanghai to England at the age of ten, he finds it very difficult to 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 fit in. Um, but he desperately wants to, and so I I think he he is very. He's very reluctant to admit, even to himself, that people find him odd, that people find him funny, that sometimes they're teasing him. He's very sensitive about that, and he, he'll do everything to deny that uh, this is happening. I'm not quite sure, what, in all these instances, you know, what exactly is happening around him, but because he's narrating it. You know, he, he denies it to himself, to the reader, but, of course, you, you read between the lines that you know, people think he's odd. He's strange, doesn't fit in. I'd like to kind of broaden the scope of, uh, of our discussion here into what exactly Kazuo Ishiguro was doing with this. Now, I understand you began taking kind of the outline of what would they call an English cozy, which is the detective who solves the murder um, and the Vicar did it, whatever, the butler did it. And then put him in the real world to see how he interacts. Is that kind of what your approach was? Mm, very crudely speaking, yes. <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, that was a starting point. Let's yeah. say that. I mean, it was it was only one of the starting points, but but that that was one of them. I used to read a lot of these Agatha Christie mysteries, Dorothy L. Sayers mysteries. You know, probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with that kind of English detective mystery that flourished in the in the 1920s and 1930s very different from the kind of hard-boiled american tradition they and what struck me as interesting about that kind of cozy english mystery was was the fact that, that, that i think there was no attempt made to make those stories realistic 
I think the whole point of them was that they were escapists in a particular kind of way. I think all important is the historical context in which those uh, mysteries flourished. It came just after the great, that wave of novels came just after the Great War, the First World War, which was the first time people had really experienced modern warfare as we know it now, with the technology advanced enough to create these incredible killing machines. Uh, a situation where, you know, you, where leaders were unable to control the war. And 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 the, these terrible horrors were unveiled, uh, perhaps for the first time, uh, on a whole generation of people in Europe, and it was a terrible trauma of, of of the deepest level, the First World War. And I think people's perception of what evil was, what suffering was, underwent an enormous change during that war. And of course, those detective, cozy detective novels, are there to comfort people. I mean, they know full well that evil is not about just some nasty murderer, you know, um, poisoning somebody for his inheritance. But just for a moment, you know, that's what those stories try to describe. They present a world that is almost ideal, usually in a cozy English village where everyone knows his or her place. Everything works perfectly except just one thing has gone wrong. There's murderer is going around killing people and all it takes this is a comforting message all it takes is for a detective this super figure to come from the outside and un unmask the evil and the garden can turn back to its kind of beautiful rosy sunny place that that's the message of those books nobody was fooled by them they were read by people who knew better than we do sitting here you know what it really meant to to suffer in under modern warfare the, the, um they just enjoyed a little bit of escapism, trying to remember a time when they believed something else. And I think it's for that reason there's no attempt at realism in those books. They're fantasy books. I mean, they take place in our, in our world in quotes, but they're fantasy in a time between the wars when uh, things are heating up, things are looking very grim. And on top of that, there was a depression going on in the 30s. When you take a fantasy image and throw it into the real world, someone has to be clueless, I guess, and in this case it would be the detective. Yes, I mean, I, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to take a figure who thinks, or who, take, who takes on the assumptions of the, the cozy English detective novel? He thinks, well, here, I've become a detective. My, you know, I, want to, I want to fight evil in the world, and the way to do that is to, to run around unmasking vicars who are poisoning people and so on. I thought, well, wouldn't it be fascinating to plunge somebody with that attitude in, into, the, into the world as it moves from one world war to the next? And so I had this idea before I started of a guy who goes around investigating high society crimes in London with a magnifying glass in the 30s and ends up trying to, well, effectively investigate... Um, well, you know, looking through the same magnifying glass in a war zone in Shanghai, looking at all these kind of burnt corpses strewn in some building that's been bombed, um, you know, desperately trying to find out who the murderer is. He also has this bizarre idea that somehow, as an adult in his 30s, with his parents having been kidnapped some 20 years earlier, 15 years earlier, that not only would they still be in Shanghai, but they would even be alive. Why wouldn't someone say to him, hey, look, you're not going to find them. In fact, they, 
they say, well, we'll have a party, we'll throw a parade. Because, I mean, I should say the book is a first-person narrative, and it is very much um, Christopher Banks's vision of the world. We're seeing the world very much through his eyes. And what I was trying to do here was I was trying to paint the world as it would look according to some crazy internal logic in his head. You know, things have remained frozen for him, in a way, emotionally, at that childhood level when he lost, when his parents disappeared. He believed then that, yes, the detect if the detectives could only find his parents again, the world that's fallen apart for him will be put back together. And of course, he grows up. In a sense, he you know he he turns into an adult. But there's a there's a part of him that has remained arrested with that same attitude. There's a small part of him thinks, yes, I mean I can always find my parents. They'll still be there. Uh, held by kidnappers in some little hut somewhere in Shanghai. And if only I could find them, they're still there somewhere, you know, even after all these years. Now all I have to do is find them, and then everything will go back to being beautiful again. Now, of course, this is crazy logic, but I think you know, many people, many of us, actually often go about our lives with a piece of irrational, emotional logic like that. We might not take it to the extremes that Christopher does. But, of course, I mean, many of us refuse to believe that something that perhaps got broken way back in childhood, it, we refuse to believe that it's too late to mend that. And we know logically, rationally, as adults, that something that, is, that time has got long gone. Um, but we often, in our choice of what we do, with our careers, the choice of who we associate with, who we marry, what kind of relationships we drift into. There's some darker, irrational side of us that's trying to go back to some past thing and replay it and this time have a have the right ending. Now, you were born uh, in Nagasaki, grew up there, and came to England. What prompted you to become a writer as you were growing up? Was there any particular incident that made you say, hey, or has it always been there? Well, no, I wasn't one of these people with a burning ambition to to be a writer. Um, I didn't actually do any writing at all of any note, certainly not no fiction, until I was 23 years old. My ambition throughout my teenage years was, was to be a songwriter. And I wrote over 100 songs. And I was very serious about it. And I had a whole career of failure and rejection before I began my career as a writer and it's like a lot of things in life you you knock on one door for a long time it doesn't open and suddenly another one pops open and you're allowed to go through it and that's kind of what happened to me I moved uh, from writing songs to writing stories around at that time when I was 23 24 and almost as soon as I started to write short stories they got published I sent them away and they were published and very quickly I, I had a contract with a with one of the really good publishing houses in in London to complete my first novel A Pale View of Hills. This after many years of um, going to record companies with demo tapes and where you're kept waiting in a corridor for an hour and then some guy played your tape for about three minutes and said you know it's not going to happen man. But for me of course, yes. I mean, music or writing songs anyway and writing fiction, of course, they're in some ways very different things. But somewhere internally, emotionally, 
I don't see them as being that different. I see a clear continuity in what I was trying to do. And as a songwriter and as a short story writer, it was a very smooth transition. And then I went on to write fiction. It's only in looking back after many years that I can speculate as to why I was interested in writing, you know, writing fiction. Right? And I, I think my move from Japan had a lot to do with it. To explain that, I mean, for many years when I was growing up in England, I didn't have a special interest in Japan. I wasn't you know, researching Japan. I wasn't that keen on it. But I always assumed that Japan was the place where I would live. Between the age of five, when I went to England, and the age of about 16, uh, the family was always going to go back. You know, my father was in England as a scientist, and it was a temporary visit. So I always thought of Japan as my proper home. And so without doing any conscious research, over those years of my growing up, I think I'd built up uh, a huge amount of material in my head, just speculation, memories, imagination, you know, um, and also stuff that I, I read in comics and things that were sent over to me from Japan. I had a whole world in my head that I called Japan. That was a very important place for me. It was the place where I came from, where I was going to go back. And I think once I got to my 20s, I realized that I wasn't going to go back to this Japan. And what's more, this Japan in my head didn't exist anymore. That, you know, partly because time had moved on, but also because I realized to a certain extent that that world I had in my head and I called Japan, that was the world of my childhood. It's the, a lot of the peculiarities had to do with it being my early childhood. And I think I realized that with every year that went by, this rather precious world would disappear out of my head. And I think that's partly that was partly the, my impetus in wanting to write these bits of fiction set in a Japan that I didn't actually know. All my Japanese books are set in the period just before my birth. I, I, I think I wanted to make safe this Japan that I had accumulated in my head by putting it down in writing, preserving it in a book. I wonder how much of that has to do with that Shanghai, that international settlement that Christopher has in his head that bears no relation to reality, too. Are, 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 you, uh, are you moving along that track, too, in, in writing the book? I think there's obviously some parallel there. I mean, I, you know, I, I feel a certain amount for Christopher because... Uh, and there's a lot about his childhood memories of Shanghai. I deliberately kept his memories of Shanghai confined to that very small personal world of a child, very different from the Shanghai he sees when he returns as an adult. Because the world of childhood, it, it is often very small. It's to do with the house where you live, the garden, the few people you, you come across. It's basically, it's that. It's that, it's the, it's that sheltered Yes, happy place, although he doesn't realize how happy he is at the time. It's that sheltered place that you live in before you make that journey into the rougher, colder, chillier world. It's that that uh, Christopher has a certain nostalgia for. And it's, I think, as you say, there's probably some parallel there. At a certain point in my life, I realized that what I call Japan and, and look back to with great emotional fondness and nostalgia actually was that 
that bubble of innocence that I was allowed to live in as a small child. When people from Japan read those two early works of yours, are they looking at a fantasy Japan, the fantasy Japan of Ish, or are they looking at the real Japan? How close did you get it? I've never quite been able to ascertain that for myself. You see, for a lot of Japanese people, even when those books are published in the 80s, and certainly now, the Japan I describe is, is a Japan that is long gone. And to, to a lot of modern Japanese, that kind of Japan is, is as foreign and exotic as it would be to people here in the West. Um, it's a way of life that vanished, you know, people sitting around on tatami mats and that kind of stuff. Um, so I, do, I don't know. And to, you know to, what you have to understand is, is that to Japanese people, that is also period fiction. It's almost like historical fiction because of the huge changes in the lifestyle between the 1940s that I described in those early books and, uh, and today. I mean, I would never myself claim that they were good books to go to if somebody, someone was wanting to research what life in Japan was like. And I've actually often resisted, you know, I've actually said in interviews at, at the time that, you know, with, I, I wanted to give a kind of a health warning, <laughs> um, uh, 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 particularly in England, I mean, where there's a very high level of ignorance about things Japanese. People are more sophisticated about things like that on the West Coast here. But um, uh, in, in England, I mean, people are li liable to take take with great trust anything that uh, anybody with a Japanese background says about Japan. So I, I used to say a lot in those days, look, this is a work of fiction. It's a personal vision of the world that is coming through here. Although, yes, it's, it's decked out like Japan. You know, if you're a serious scholar of Japanese history or Japanese society, you know, go somewhere else. Having said that, you know, I don't think I've, you know, it's, it's, it's way out, you know. I, mean, I don't, no one has expressed great outrage either in Japan or anywhere else. I, I, no one has suggested I misrepresent um, things. But, I, you know, there are better places to go if you want, to, if you want kind of a deeper historical picture of what life in Japan was like. Both the British and the Japanese have a certain stiff upper lip attitude, which comes across, of course, in that scene uh, where the two boys are uh, saying, who would cry last? And I, I wonder how much of the British sensibility then would sneak into the Japanese books and how much the Japanese sensibility from when you were very young would sneak into a book like Remains of the Day. Well, of course, as a writer, I'm not very conscious, well, even as a person, you know, I'm not, right. I can't be conscious of you know, the, the distinction between Japanese uh, parts of me and English parts of me. I, you know, I'm just who I am. And, and the last thing I ask is, you know, uh, this thing I've just written here, does it come from the Japanese side of my nature or whatever? It's only when I take a couple of steps back, I think, well, it's in, perhaps, yes, it's inevitable I would approach things in a certain kind of way because I've been brought up in England. What's more, this kind of home counties England of the 1960s and 1970s, of, uh, a much stiffer place than it probably is today. Uh, by Japanese parents from of that you know, older generation. Um, so it would be odd if I wasn't somehow influenced deeply by those aspects of these, these two cultures. But having said that, you know, as I say, I, I'm very little conscious. I mean, although a book like The Remains of the Day takes place in England, and, uh, and my earlier books, the, my first two books, took place in Japan, I mean, 
I'm reluctant to think of them as Japanese books or English books. I think stylistically, as a as an author, I'm very much in the Western tradition. It's Western authors I read. I I, I think I probably think about things like society and and what matters in, in much more typically Western terms. They are bits of Western writing in a way. What draws you to that period prior to World War Two? You're, you're you're right that, that I think at least four of my five yeah four of my five books in some way concern themselves with that period before World War Two. I've often asked myself this because I I'm not that fond of the 1930s in terms of its style or flavor. It's more of a practical thing as an author. I'm one of the generation of writers who emerged in the 1980s in Britain with with a kind of a inferiority complex about our immediate culture. We found ourselves living in an affluent, stable, safe part of Western Europe. And in a very decadent kind of way, I think um, we almost envied writers who lived more on the front line, you know, the writers who lived in communist Eastern Europe or in the developing world, or at least who knew about these places at first hand, because we thought, well, they've got big subjects ready-made you know, by describing what they knew, uh, their own lives. You know, they, could, they could talk about the big issues of the day, the clash between communism and capitalism, the clash between the first world and the third. We felt very handicapped, you know, uh, in the... Uh, in England, here we were. I mean, when you tried to write about the life you knew, you, you you wrote small provincial novels that didn't seem to matter. We were, in many ways, a kind of a cultural backwater. This is how it felt in kind of post-empire England. And I think you'll find it's not just me, but quite a lot of writers over the last 20 years, contemporary writers in Britain, have, have set their novels either around the Second World War or around the First World War. You know, we could drop a huge list of notable books by contemporary authors that, that have done this. It's it's one of the one of the two solutions that we we came across. One you know, one thing you could do if you lived in boring, dull, safe, rich England was you could travel geographically. You know, you could write about Africa or or yeah, Eastern Europe or something like this. But of course, we felt we didn't know, you know, a great deal about those parts of the world. You would have to know and learn a lot more, become foreign correspondents to some extent. So that that was difficult. So the, the other option is to travel in time, to a point when, and you don't have to go back very far. You see, to so a point when in England, you know, in Western Europe, everything was up for grabs. The whole whole of what we now take for granted as civilization was crumbling. These assumptions about democracy and freedom, you know, n not only the extreme people, but even the mainstream people had come to the view that perhaps democracy was, was something that had had its day. And by the 1930s, it very much looked like that. Almost everyone, to some extent, had gone over to some at least partially compromised form of democratic government, if not outright, out and out um, uh, totalitarianism in Europe. These values that we we hold dear today, I mean, they, they were they were rapidly vanishing then, and so I think it's that that draws me to to that time. It 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 was a time when the questions were big. It's kind of like location hunting. I, I feel sometimes like a movie director. I need a good location in history, 
and and I often go back to that t- time of turmoil and uncertainty. Well, do you think now at this point, with things becoming more uncertain in the world, I mean, we have no idea where the world is going to be in ten years. Not in the sense that there are enemies to fight, but that there doesn't seem to be there doesn't seem to be an enemy. But the world must go forward. I mean, things aren't black or white; they're all gray now, so gray that that it it strikes me that um, everybody, including the presidential candidates here and Tony Blair in England, they seem all a little bit lost. Well, I think this is partly um, because we live in post Cold War years. For many years of my life, you know, the, um, politics, even far away from Eastern Europe, was defined by the clash between communism and, and capitalism, right and left, as we called it. We, we all had a kind of a shadow contest of the of the big war between communism and capitalism. And with the collapse of communism, yeah, the whole whole of politics has changed. Yes, as you say, th- there seems to be. For for a time, an apparent sense of grayness, but that that's perhaps our perception that we haven't learned to see the challenges, the schisms, very clearly yet. We haven't put it into a kind of a shorthand. Uh, we had a ready-made shorthand during all those years of, of the Cold War. You know, I think there are huge challenges still facing us. Just on the cultural front, um, this, this grayness is also a threat just in the world of culture and and literature too. And it's also part of the effect of what people are calling globalization. And it is something that worries me as a a writer. I'm only talking once again in in my small field of culture and writing. I know that there are much bigger issues about globalization, but I know that as a writer myself, I have become increasingly conscious of writing for translation. I don't really write for just the people in England. I have a very imaginary reader that looks over my shoulder when I write. It's this very strange creature now. And I often stop myself writing something because I know perhaps it doesn't work. It won't, it won't survive translation. You know, it, here's a line that works beautifully in English with a pun and you know, some, some great explosion of verbal energy. But I think, well... That only works in English. Translate into the Danish, it turns into nonsense. Yeah. So I don't use it. I might go further. I, I, I don't describe local flavor, local character very much. I wouldn't describe a character in terms of you know, which restaurant he dines in or which labels he wears on his clothes because I think, oh, people in Kuala Lumpur or in Minneapolis wouldn't really, it wouldn't mean anything to them, these signifiers, you know. And I think it goes deeper and deeper, even the very themes, what I consider to be important. I think this is very much influenced by my sense that it has to be important, not just to the people around me and the society I live in on a day-to-day basis, but it has to be something of interest and importance to people in Denmark, people in Japan, you know, people in California. And I think, in a way, this is good, all right? It makes you think big. It makes you think internationally. It stops you being provincial writer but the great danger is this grayness that somehow this local you know a lot of the 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 liveliness of literature derives from being very closely bound to the grassroots of where you write and uh, yes I could end up writing a kind of a 
a fictional equivalent to to the to the sort of language you see in in international news magazines. You know, um, a literary language that that is ready made for translation, and that everyone around the world will start doing the same thing. And this this does concern me. I I keep thinking that uh, as you're talking that wouldn't it concern you in that as a writer and as a creative individual wouldn't you find yourself falling into a trap of self-censorship where you're so aware hyper aware that you could cut yourself off from your deeper deeper more provincial levels of getting to the root of who Kazuo Ishiguro is yes this is this is the very fear I'm trying to trying to articulate you in some ways you put it better than <laughs> I did I mean there are a lot of the benefits of you know thinking thinking internationally in, in other words of being a kind of international writer but yes you might cut yourself off from that very vital thing you know inside you so i, I don't know but but I, I what i'm saying is, is i'm not really saying that you know this is a good thing or a bad thing once you follow this or re resist it i think we've got it whether we like it or not it's like every other aspect of globalization this is what's happening. I'm not saying that I've adopted any kind of policy deliberately. But if you do what I do and what many other writers do, which is go around talking about your novel in lots of different countries around the world, you cannot help next time you sit down at your desk in the darkness just by yourself. You cannot help remember somewhere at the back of your mind all these people that you've explained your book to. You will not forget that what you write will one day be will have to be understood by people in Norway, by people in Taiwan, because you've been out there and you've had to face these audiences. They have actually become a very real audience to you. you know, these are the, you see their faces. You, these are the journalists from those countries have interrogated you about these books. It's not that you make a kind of a policy decision about how you're going to write. It's it's just the same as you know if you're a journalist and you know that your paper is is intended just for a local audience you write in one way and if you're if you're being asked to write for for time or newsweek you know you're probably writing in a slightly different way i mean you, you you change how you write what you write because of how you perceive your audience and and that just happens naturally i think in some ways i welcome it in some ways i fear it i think there are great opportunities and great dangers in the whole globalization thing but it's it's here and i think it's affecting authors quite deeply yeah, I keep thinking that uh, to some degree the author who sits in that small garret somewhere, never going out and meeting his or her public, almost has an advantage. There's a purity there. They haven't been corrupted by the gushing reader coming up and saying, well, what about this? Well, it's very odd for me to say this right now because here I am on a book tour right. talking to you on uh, on a radio show, but um, there's a part of me that great, greatly envies a writer who can do that. You know, to just sit quietly in a room, have very little to do with the outside world, never has to explain why he wrote this, where certain things have come from. Uh, I think you're right. I think that there is an advantage, a huge advantage to be gained by that. But the reality is, I mean, this is the world we live in. I think that the book world has changed enormously, in, even in the years that I've been writing. In the last 15 years, it's, it's changed beyond recognition. And one of the features of it is, is that writers, particularly writers who are being pushed by a publishing house, not just established writers and, and the stars, but any 
anybody that a publishing house thinks could become an established writer, I mean, they are immediately thrust into the public arena, often sent around all around the world by different publishing houses, different languages. I've been talking to a lot of young writers who I'm rather concerned about. I mean, you know, I, I had, to some extent, my writing identity has solidified to a certain extent before I started to do all this. Uh, there are writers in their early 20s, very promising writers, who, who are already close to burnout that I've met and had these discussions with. You know, they, they write a novel at 22, and, you know, they're, they're sent on you know, tours, you know, U.S. tours, European tours, and next time they try and write, they don't know what the hell to do. You know, they, they've, they've, they've given so many accounts of why they wrote this, what, you know, who their influences are, how their personal lives feed into their writing. They're completely paralyzed you know, the next time they sit down. Kazuo Ishiguro, now when we were or orphans has come out, are you working on something else? When it's Christmas, I think I'll, um, I'll settle down to do a little proper writing. This year has been taken up with uh, talking about the book I just finished. Well, I have three possible projects that I've been knocking around with in my head. One of which uh, would be my first attempt to, to write an American novel. That's, that's to say a, a book set in America. I'm quite interested in writing about someone who comes over from Eastern Europe and becomes one of these you know, songwriters of you know, the, the great American song, the pre-rock and roll era of, of, you know, of that Irving Berlin through the Cole Porter era. So a lot of those guys did have these Eastern European backgrounds. It's that mix of sometimes a conservatoire musical training um, and then coming over to America as a, as a poor immigrant and being open to the influences of Amer American vernacular, of, of, the, of the, uh, the black music and so on, that produced a lot of those great jazz songs of that era. And uh, I'm quite interested in, in writing a novel on that territory. Kazuo Ishiguro's next novel, After When We Were Orphans, was a dystopian science fiction novel, Never Let Me Go, which was set in the near future. Along with Living, which can now be seen on Netflix, he has written screenplays for The Saddest Music in the World, which is now on AMC+. An adaptation of Never Let Me Go can be found on Stars, and one of An Artist of the Floating World is on Amazon Prime. Both The White Countess, for which he wrote the screenplay, and an adaptation of The Remains of the Day can be rented on various apps. A television series adaptation of Never Let Me Go was announced and then canceled last February. You've been listening to an interview with Nobel Prize winning novelist Kazuo Ishiguro, recorded October 8, 2000, while he was on tour for his novel, When We Were Orphans. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>